0: Welcome to Book to Wear, two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. An interview this week, which I think we mentioned that we were trying to line up some interviews, right? Well, we were successful. And tonight we're going to have on Frank Bill, uh, whose book we reviewed just, man, like three weeks ago, right? Reviewed The Savage. So we're going to have the author of The Savage on in just a few moments. Um, Rob, how's your holiday season shaping up?
1: Um, good. Um, I, 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 get to have some extra long weekends for the for Christmas and New Year's. It was pretty nice. Um, did some shopping for the gift exchange for our, our Christmas episode. So for, feel pretty good about that. What about you? Fair.
0: That's what I was kind of getting towards. <laughs> um, I've been sick like on and off for like six weeks now. So if I sound like shit, um, this is my life now. This is how I sound in perpetuity. Apparently, um, I am essentially two thirds of the way done with my shopping for the gift exchange, meaning one of you guys, uh, I don't yet, uh, I'll just say it. I don't yet know what I'm getting. One of you guys, uh, the other, the other two are kind of works in progress right now, but yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. And you know what? That episode is coming up just a week from now. That's crazy. And it's crazy. It's going to be a video episode. So we'll be on YouTube. Um, just like the Halloween spectacular extravaganza spectacular from, uh,
1: like feels like just like six weeks ago. So great! I think it probably was six weeks ago. Um, yeah, very excited. Uh, but for today, we're going to talk to Frank Bill, author of Donnie Brook, Crimes in Southern Indiana, and um, now The Savage, which I kind of just spoiled his entire author bio. Should I still read it?
0: <laughs> I think that's now his author bio. <laughs> Frank
1: Bill is the author of the novel Donnie Brook and the short story collection Crimes in Southern Indiana, named one of GQ's favorite books of 2011 and a daily beast debut, best debut of 2011. So, and then he's got the savage and, um, it's just a fucking cool guy. Frank,
0: thanks for joining us again here on booked. It's been, it's been a couple of years now. Yes, it has.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, um, we recently reviewed, uh, your new novel, the savage and, um, what we like to do when we have authors on, and I'm, I know you know this, but I'm really telling our listeners, uh, is um, to have the author kind of talk about the book in their own uh, words. So do you mind telling us really quickly a little bit about what The Savage is for our listeners?
2: Yeah, it's basically uh, – you could call it a follow-up to Donny Brook, though you don't have to read Donnybrook to understand what's going on in The Savage. Uh, it only pulls one character – or I should say one character pulls a couple of characters from Donnie Brooke, but there's uh the one main character is Chainsaw Angus. Um, but it mainly deals with, uh, kind of like the whole downfall of humanity, if you want to call it that, but there's a power grid fail, uh, based with a dollar is no longer worth shit. And, uh, it follows a young man by the name of Van Dorn and it does a lot with masculinity and all the things he's learned from his father, as far as living off the land and just kind of being a pioneer and living the old ways because it's something that people don't uh, look at anymore. They've, uh, I think we've lost touch with things that we uh, had gotten from our relatives or not really relatives, but like our grandparents, great grandparents, great grandparents, a lot of our uh, history, you know, we've lost a lot of that. And uh, we've lost a lot of our skills, basically, you know, we're all reliant upon pushing a button or having somebody do it for us. And uh, that's a lot of what it follows because this young man is trying to survive without, any power without money. And he has to learn to basically fend for himself while you have uh, the other part of the story is basically what I call a power struggle, kind of like Lord of the flies and uh, kind of like tribes of people gathering together. And then one, rather than one person actually being a good leader and initiating help amongst everyone, they're just kind of basically saying, you do what I tell you to do or I will kill you. You know, that's kind of what happens sometimes with the, with some, when somebody gets too much power or thinks they're the leader of, of certain things, uh, as we've all seen, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the, my idea of what humanity would look like if everything went to shit, <laughs> but you know, when I was writing this, this was back right after I finished Donnybrook back in 2010, 2011, I guess. And, uh, that's when I first started on it. So there was a lot of, uh, I guess in my mind, a lot of unrest that people are just now seeing. So it's, uh, it's kind of wild because I know the entire time we were working on the edits of this book, I was like, man, this is kind of crazy with all this shit that's going on right now. And my editor's (laughs) like, yeah, it's kind of, kind of fitting in with things with that, uh, you know, (laughs) you know, because of how long ago you started working on this. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I said, really, uh, I said, I hope it does well. You know, I hope people get out can overlook a lot of the violence that's in it and just go for the storytelling. So,
0: yeah, I made an interesting comment there that that kind of spurred something. You talked about how we don't learn from our elders anymore, and it seems that nowadays with technology, it's it's that that um, the younger people are teaching the older people more frequently. So, you know, you still get kind of your basics when you're a youth, but it seems like as you get an adult, you're no longer following what you were taught but that uh, the older you get the more you're dependent on the young to teach you things so it could be a a complete shift in 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 how knowledge progresses really so it's uh you get a little bit at the beginning when you're a kid and as soon as you're old enough to kind of pick up technology it seems like you're teaching the older generation so it's kind of a kind of an interesting uh thing that might be happening there
2: right yeah i mean i kind of fell into that that i mean it's kind of like that whole uh in between because you know i learning so much from my, my, you know, my parents, my grandparents and that kind of thing. But it was also when you were getting away from going to a movie theater because you had things like the VCR was coming out, you know, because things like uh, the big laser disc had kind of failed, you know, nobody could afford one. And by the time somebody could afford one, you had VHS. And by the time that came along, then you started to get more into computers. And then the internet came and then you were getting the Blu-ray, you had CDs, and then everything went to digital. So then those were obsolete. And then you just start, you know, you know, now you've got basically a computer in your hand and you can talk on it. You know, it's something that somebody would never have thought of, you know, with the uh, smartphones and even smart televisions. And yeah, it's, it's a lot different than what it used to be. Um, it's, it's kind of nice though, to be that in that in between era and see how, you know, you, of course, I can use a computer, but of course, then we have a hard time connecting with one one another for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out all the new new technology for it, so. But still, yeah, it is. It's it's
1: interesting. It's very interesting. I'm 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 making a conscious effort right now to not go down that rabbit hole because I have so many weird theories about, like how computers and technology have changed people. Um, but one thing I want to say was sure. like the whole um, it, one of the big things was um, you talking about like what people would be like if kind of the, you know, the world as we know it kind of ended in a way. And I was, I was having a conversation with a friend earlier today about, um, and I'm going to go way back to, we were interviewing Stephen Graham Jones like five years ago about zombies and stuff. And he made a really interesting insight in a, in a zombie apocalypse where he said something along the lines of um, it's not about surviving. It's about having the best death and, (laughs) and, and that always, <laughs> right. And that always stuck with me. And I was thinking in, in the situation, in the, in the world of the savage and Livius and I kind of said this on the episode, like, I know that I'm in that cage. I'm not one of the people that's running shit. I'm going to be in the cage uh, or, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but when I was thinking about it, it as right. like in, in a, in a world that you, in the, in the world that you created, it was like, um, essentially like every waking moment you have to just you're trying to survive and I, I i made the decision in the in the conversation i don't want to survive in that world <laughs> so right uh, right and, and i'm sure that there's there's that aspect to it but like we get to watch the survivors kind of scramble and everything so i don't know it's just a thought that i was having earlier today and uh, it made sense to talk about it here
2: right well you know the one of the things too you know it, it it's a lot to do with my childhood I mean, that's a, a a lot is the reason why I wrote the book, um, because there was so many things that growing up that that's why I dedicated the opening of the book to my cousin, I, you know, about us building fires together or whatever, because when we were kids, what we used to do, we'd be on my grandparents' farm and we'd go out and hunt and stuff, but we'd always go out in the woods and build fires and, uh, uh, either rabbit hunt, squirrel hunt, coon hunt, that kind of thing. And it was just kind of like, we we're always playing in the woods, doing whatever, um, and when we go to school, you always had kids that lived in town. It's kind of like they just thought that we were living like this crazy little life that they didn't get to live. So it was, it was kind of it's kind of neat to see the, the difference between the two because our childhood, we just thought everybody lived that way. You know, they, we always thought that everybody's grandparents knew how to can or everybody had a garden and everybody knew how to hunt and everybody knew how to fish. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always, you know, it wasn't always that way, you know. So it's just always interesting. We didn't realize that we had, in my sense now, is that we kind of had a, I don't want to say a special childhood, but it was kind of more gifted than what other people had in a sense, you know?
1: Absolutely. There's, and there's even um, things I've seen recently uh, where there's articles that I see posted on online and stuff where it's like, Hey, you know, now that you're an adult, like this teen, like millennial people and everything. These are the things that you need to know how to do. And it's simple stuff that you would expect people to do, like how to do sure. laundry. And so I think that sure, that's very, like insane. <laughs> yeah. And so like your <clears throat> perspective, um, it, it, those, yeah, those are like those skills and the, and the knowledge is, is absolutely like an endangered species because people can't even put together, you know, cleaning their clothes. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, my grandparents didn't even have a regular washer and dryer. You know, they had the old ringer-type washer. Yeah. I remember having to help my grandmother. He would start laundry, and on, once it got done washing, this ringer washer, which it's basically just a tub, it goes. you have to pull it through one side to the other. You have to pull it through this thing that basically pulls all the water out of it, and you put it in this other this this other tub in order to put it either on the line in the summer to dry, or she had an old old dryer you could put it into. When you were done washing you had to actually dump the buckets of water it was kind of it's a lot different you know it was this big five ten gallon bucket you'd be dumping a couple of times a day so yeah it was what yeah I mean it's just completely different than what I can only imagine what Millennials would do with that because you're gonna have to learn how to get strong too you know you' have to do some push-ups pull-ups lift some weight something you know so
0: I'm, I'm in my just saying. I'm in my 40s I grew up in the city and I wouldn't know what to do with that type of washer so <laughs>
1: Hey, where do you plug it in?
0: Oh, what? Here, here's
2: something even funnier. If it broke, my grandfather would somehow find another one for my grandmother to use. It'd be a newer model, and it was still the same <laughs> type of washer.
0: <laughs> newer model.
2: Love it. Is man. that insane? Yeah, you know, we never thought much about it when we were kids. You know, you know, our parents had regular washers and dryers, but my grandparents didn't. That's just they lived a really simple life. It was kind of, I mean, even looking back, if you went to the grocery, my grandmother went to the grocery like maybe once a month, and it was grandfather I think got paid every two weeks. And when you have a, I remember going to the grocery with her, they never bought meat at the grocery. They never bought eggs at the grocery. The only thing that you really buy was like milk, bread, um, any of the spices you'd need, maybe some ice cream, uh, potato chips, very rarely soda pop was not. So that was more like, uh, you had to earn that, you know, it's just wasn't something they bought, you know, you pretty much, you know, crackers and bologna, uh, tea. I mean, and then whatever you had in the garden, whatever you hunted, that's pretty much what you had. So.
1: That's amazing.
2: Well, you know, it's a lot different than what it is now. And of course, now people are wanting to learn how to garden and do all this stuff. And it's like, it's just, there's, they make it complicated and it shouldn't be complicated,
0: you know? Well, now it's all, when they do it, it's all about being organic. And when your family was doing it, it was about survival.
2: So right. And it wasn't nothing to do with organic. We don't pick the shits so the bugs didn't eat it, you know? I mean, come on. <laughs> yep. and, and here's the thing about organic. Organic is all cool and it's over, it's kind of overpriced in a sense, you know, you're better off doing it at home yourself and they bitch about pesticides, but you know, it takes like 10 times as many organic pesticides to keep the bugs off than it does regular food. <laughs> so <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you're better off just buying the other stuff at the, at the market and just washing it. I mean, mm-hmm. cause I don't think, I don't think any farmers trying to sell his shit to kill other people. He's trying to make a living from what he's growing, you know? So that's good old, uh, what is the organic place you can buy stuff at whole foods <laughs>
1: yeah Whole Foods. yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah. it's very overpriced <laughs> yeah definitely we spoke quite a bit about the language used in the savage and then in a message to us after our review you explained to us that you were writing in the old testament style can you tell us about the choice to change it from your previous work to kind of a different uh, a different language almost
2: Yeah. It's just kind of the way it came out at first, you know, when I was writing it and, uh, it, it, I just wanted this, it was kind of a Gothic text and I'm like, you know, this is kind of an old Testament way of doing things and speaking and it being old Testament to me, it just goes back to the old values. And I wanted to be able to keep that, that entire train of thought all the way through and keep the, the language the same all the way through. And, uh, the other thing is I don't ever want to write every book the same either. You know, the next book will be written a little different and so on and so forth. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a lot of it's just, just being grounded in the old ways. And you know, when I think of Old Testament and Old Testament values, I kind of think there's a, that's, the, you know, there's a different way that you speak. Um, especially if you read like the, the Old Testament Bible, that type of thing. Or it, it even goes back to my infatuation with Deadwood, you know, and David Milch's, writing three awesome seasons and a million different ways to say motherfucker. I mean, it's just, uh, it takes a, it takes a lot of work to do that. I mean, it's a lot of talent there. So, yeah.
1: Well, so after our episode posted and we had talked about that, a friend of ours, uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, John, um, reached out specifically to talk about that. And he kind of gave us a perspective that I thought was neat. And you may or may not kind of, be aware of of this but um he heard someone talking about the show the walking dead which i guess also kind of i don't watch the show but um has some unique speech um uh used in the dialogue and um this is the quote he sent me uh sometimes in different groups people develop their own speech patterns and habits and once you're sort of cut off from pop culture and radio and television you're not hearing other people talk that way um and so the way that um the speech becomes more uh, local. And um, so like right. in a in a post-apocalyptic kind of situation or a whatever this, you want to call it, your influences become way more close to you than like the global kind of connected way that we have now. So that was a really interesting sure. perspective and I hadn't thought about it, but it totally makes sense. So that was a cool thing that someone kind of pointed out to us.
2: Yeah, I never thought about that because, I mean, really – if you were cut off from everybody else for a while, or, you know, cut off from the rest of the world or you don't have somebody constantly correcting the way you speak, you would probably change quite a bit other than picking up a book. <laughs> yeah. To be more influenced by the books, you know, you'd have to learn how to read again. So, you know, you to listen to podcasts or audio books or watch television. So your speech would pretty much change quite a bit mm-hmm. you know well i mean an easy thing to i can can relate to is when i went to france and i was in france for a week i mean by the end of the week i'd hung around so many french people i was starting to kind of get this <laughs> rounded way that i would speak i'm like holy shit now i'm gonna think you're making fun of me you don't mean to it just you're starting to talk like them because you're around them so yep. much you know
1: yeah so, yeah, it's, it's yeah wild. i can see that i think it totally works and you're the the old testament explanation makes total sense um so, yeah.
2: I had never even thought about anybody reading it and not, uh, I don't know. I didn't really think about the language bothering anybody. And uh, one of my buddies <laughs> who had read some of the earlier drafts really liked it. And he listened to your podcast, he goes, yeah. He goes, That's probably is going to be something that, you know, he goes, I thought about that after you wrote it. He goes, but, you know, I said, I think for the most part, people are going to read it and like it, you know. Well, I, said, yeah, well, I, I think never... there might
1: be different approaches too. like um, a person may not have read your previous works or maybe they're not as sure as we're thinking very like because we we review books maybe we think deeper about like well why is this like this than maybe the average person would so um right we're like sure. professional nitpickers so
2: hey there's nothing wrong with that
1: <laughs> and
2: i think <laughs> and, plus and, you all i mean y'all have read the other two books so you're probably thinking what the hell happened
0: so, <laughs> so i think it has more to do with that because if i was reading a post-apocalyptic book and not kind of really realizing that it's, it's a follow-up to a story that I've already read. I probably would sure. have accepted it as just a nuance of this is what happens after everything goes to shit. So yeah, I think it has to do a little bit <laughs> with Red book,
1: specifically because it's a continuation of, yeah, at least somewhat of a continuation of that story. Right. Right. Talking about continuations or connected stories. Um, how did you feel about having um, uh, recently having a short story in Playboy? Was that a cool thing to to experience?
2: Yeah, and it was actually the timing was pretty good because that story was supposed to have been published like uh, over a year ago, and the the editor had reached out to my agent, Stacia Decker, and uh, she, you know, she reaches me and like, hey, there's a guy, this editor, so and so would like, you know, he's looking for different writers. He's a fan. I don't know if you would like to contribute a story. I'm like, oh, hell yeah like to be in playboy again that's awesome and so i had something i was writing at the time and sent it to him and he liked it but it just wasn't uh, enough action so then i was like well fuck it i guess i'm gonna have to pull out a piece of this other novel i'm wanting to write i'm gonna have to go ahead and write it so then i have to go out and do a little bit of research and stuff and uh got with my buddy who's a cop and got to asking a million questions it's like what the fuck are you writing about dude and i'm like <laughs> well this is kind of what you know i can't tell you everything but you know i just kind of need to know these things you know and So he gets, uh, he had pulled some, uh, security, like at uh, Walmart during black, black Friday and stuff like that. And then here I am a couple of days a week, I'm sitting out at my Walmart, like casing the place, trying to make sure I get there on the days that Brinks trucks, there, are taking money and stuff and just kind of watching the setting and where cameras are at and how people act and all the back and forth. And it was kind of like actually doing a real robbery type thing. And, uh, it was meant to be part of a bigger story. So anyway, then I sit down and I wrote it and then, uh, Sent it to him, and of course, he liked it right away. Well, then I didn't hear from him for like a year. And I got it b- before that year was up. Stacia and I would keep talking, like, Have you heard anything? Yeah, he said it's gonna be this month or this next month or this following month. And I finally just quit asking. And then finally, a year went by, and I noticed uh, one of Stacia's other uh, writers that she represents had a story. and I'm like, well, Holy fuck, what the hell's going on? So I got to go to her, and she's like, Let me check on that. She was That's kind of weird. It's been, you know, over a year now. And, uh, she says, well, the reason why it's been so long is because that editor no longer works there and they're trying to find your story. They don't know what happened to <laughs> goes, but, uh, she says, I don't think they had lost it. It's just, you know, it's, it's misplaced somewhere and they ended up finding it. And the new editor got a hold of me and went through the edits with her and everything came out really good. She did a good job adding
1: it. So, yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> after two years, I've only seen the light of day. <laughs>
1: The wild ride that a story takes sometimes.
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, here, actually, here's it. Actually, was supposed to be published in the first issue without nudity. So then it came back all the way around to whenever they started putting nudity back in Playboy, and then my story made it back in. <laughs> well, it
0: probably got it probably got more glances that way. I got to tell you, because story in Playboy, I was probably 25 before I realized there was writing in Playboy.
2: Yeah, well, actually, there's been a, I mean, a lot of great writers in. There, I mean, you know, so.
1: Yeah, yeah. I always kind of took it as like if you had something in Playboy, that was a pretty serious big deal. status it is a big thing. Deal,
2: yeah. Oh yeah, I mean everyone from Stephen King, T.C. Boyle, uh, uh, Tom Jones, Chuck Palahniuk's been there quite a few times. I mean uh, Dennis Johnson, uh, you name it, they've probably been in there if you dig them, you know. So it's kind of crazy.
0: I uh, the the thing I that that I thought about, you know, when I heard your story was going to be in Playboy is that. You know, just like how cool is it? Because so, you know, a number of literary magazines now since you've been a writer and you may have a little bucket list of ones you want to get into. But Playboy's got to be something you were aware of when you were eight years old. You know what I mean? Like, especially as a oh, young yeah. boy growing up, yeah. you know what it is. So it's it's got to be a, oh, a yeah. pretty momentous uh, event to get into something, not just that you learned about because you're a writer, but something you've known about since you were right. you know, a child. Oh, yeah, it's a big honor. I mean, it's a huge honor.
1: Um, I guess we, sh- we were, we didn't really name it, but for our listeners. So the story is called the disgruntled Americans. Um, and, and I know you told us before and I forgot what, um what issue is it in or is it also available online?
2: Uh, I believe it was the July, August issue. Um, it was available online. I don't know if it still is. I know the gotcha. interview that I did that came right after the story is still, still available. I believe you can type in Frank bill interview at Playboy. Or you could even go to my Facebook page and probably scroll through because I know I posted on there a few times when it first came out. I don't Sweet. know if the link is still any good. Somebody told me I, I had seen somewhere they'd written, you know, that they had tried to, to read it and they couldn't. It was wanting to
0: pay for a subscription online. So you may not be able to read it that way anymore. Go to your local barber shop. They, they always have those ones that are like four or five months old, the issues sitting around. You can probably grab it there and read it. <laughs> You could
2: probably find it on Amazon, I think.
0: Yeah. Possibility.
1: It's yeah, and then you'll after you're done reading the story. There's probably something else in the magazine to look at too. I guess <laughs> a thing or two. Yeah. So <laughs> it's always a possibility.
0: This is uh, this is more of a comment because it was a question, but I want you to know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read this to you the way I wrote it. Uh, The story lays out a fairly intricate heist. It felt like all of that was very authentic. Did you plan the events out in or near your town? So I want you to know that that came over very strongly because I had a question about you casing Walmart, essentially, and kind of plotting (laughs) out how you do this, how how authentic it came across. Um, The other thing that came across is fairly authentic, and and I don't want to get super political or anything but the story details some feelings about big corporations and like the government's effects specifically on small towns. How prominent are those feelings like in, in the areas that you write about in your hometown amongst your friends and family? I mean, is that something that's really prevalent in, in your everyday life?
2: Yeah, because I mean, you, you know, everybody's always, you know, I mean, of course Walmart didn't start off as what it is now, this huge corporation, you know, it was pretty much like a mom and pop thing that grew into something much larger um but what people don't really understand is until it's too late you know when they start selling off farmland and all this to put these other stores in they're getting rid of small business is what they're getting rid of you're getting Mm -hmm. rid you're getting away from also that relationship you have with somebody who owns something and you can kind of count on them to maybe have a product that you want or to help you out maybe whenever you can't always afford things um, you know, the, the worst thing about Walmart is when you go in to buy something that you really like and they have it on the shelf a few times and then all of a sudden they're not getting bulk anymore at a decent price and they don't carry it anymore and they want you to buy something that's most like they force you to buy what they want you to buy, you know, not what you want to buy. And it, it, it throws a lot of people off the side of the road, really, you know, cause you're, you're buying up all this land and building these places and offering jobs and, uh, you know, there's a lot of research that went into the way Walmart treats employees too. I mean, that was, <laughs> you could pull a lot of it up online. <laughs> I mean, yeah. through blogs and different things. And I was like kind of blown away by that. Cause I was like, well, how am I going to get into the head of what these employees are like? And it's like, well, I could go out and talk to some people. And I thought, well, you know what? I could probably get online and, and find, I found all these different blog posts and all these different things. It's like, holy shit, it's worse than what I thought. But two, I mean, I've also worked in retail. I mean, when I was younger and, uh, not that retail was bad or anything, but it's always anywhere you work, you've always got the whole the break room chatter and all the uh, the way people are going to speak and crack jokes and what have you. You know that's just part of the monotony of working in a place. You got to have a little bit of fun, but uh, yeah, I mean uh, it is what it is, you know. Um, but th- it it kind of sucks because now if you go to a small town where Walmart's at, you got to look at all the other places that were put out of business because of it. You know, it's kind of like what do you what are you sacrificing I and mean, what are you sacrificing
0: for? The thing I found really interesting, I've never thought about, and I've I've been in retail for a long, long time, Um, but in a small town like that, and and I've seen the super Walmarts in in very small areas, but it was really interesting that you pointed out that they almost put the Walmart there to give jobs to people so that you could give most of your money back. And if you're Walmart, that's what happens, right? Because that's where everybody then has to buy their groceries and their clothes because all the smaller places have been. Um, Put out of business. Right. So it's super interesting. I mean, I guess I I don't know, you know, how many people I I looked in, I was reading that apparently as a retailer myself, um, that particular part, but I found that outside of the well plotted and intricate kind of heist situation that was happening, that there was some really, some really deep stuff out out there about culture and and especially, and and I I don't know how much that affects somebody who lives in a city versus being rural. I, I think that you know we're, we're we're just outside chicago so that that's that's been that's been here for so long that i don't know any other way so i, I you know i don't know what the effect was originally sure. but it's sure. interesting to to see and kind of um get an idea of what could, that can be like if you're living um outside of a major metropolitan area sure
2: yeah you know like well we've got a super walmart but the first walmart was actually It was a hog farm. It was all this farmland, a hog farm, like right probably a mile from, maybe two miles from where I live. And uh, I remember that from when I was a kid and then it got sold off and that's where they put the Walmart and had a Winn-Dixie and of course then Winn-Dixie went out of business and the Walmart wasn't big enough. So then there was another plot of land with more farmland that got bought up. And then there was actually some uh, decent little houses and they, I guess all that got bought off. And and now that's where your super Walmart's at. And then there was all these other little chains that come along, like uh, Pizza Hut and uh, Taco Bell, Wendy's, uh, Cracker Barrel, no Charlie's. You know, this kind of little things popping <coughs> popping up everywhere. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. That's that's the other bad thing is things like fast food when that starts to pop up everywhere, and then you wonder why everybody's getting cancer and diabetic huh. and everything else. You know, you, you get away from living off the land or having a garden to something that's quick and easy for five bucks. And yeah, it is cheaper to go out and buy, it, but it's also quicker to kill you than it is eating healthy, you know? And that, it doesn't necessarily have to be healthy either. I mean, I think you're probably better off eating uh country fried chicken sometimes or fried potatoes that you, you grew and killed yourself than you are going to KFC or uh Lee's fried chicken. You know, I mean, <laughs>
1: yeah, Oh yeah,
2: for sure. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just a difference in, everybody's everything is so mass produced anymore who knows what's going into what it's just kind of scary but that's kind of society we live in now too i mean I understand that
1: you know yeah you even and you touched on the cultural identity side of it uh, i think as well where for me like growing up um uh, like as a kid and as a young adult and everything i always thought like diners were the best thing in the world and because oh, of yeah. all the, like these chains and stuff like that diners are not almost they're almost not a thing at all and it's it's not like no it's not like I, I'm, it seems like a like a small thing to talk about but um at the same time you know uh that was that's part of the cultural identity of the united states and it's just kind of vanishing because chain stores are what people know and so yeah there's that sure. side, there's that side yeah. of it too
2: There's a big culture to yeah, you know, i mean we had like in downtown court we saw a place called Jockos, i mean when I was a kid that was, my cousin worked there too. He's, he's a year older than me. And, uh, that was the place, I mean, if you wanted, that was like the best fried, you know, was the best cheeseburgers you could get, you know, the guy yep. pulled, you know, he made the, he made all the hamburger patties up every morning and he went in there and he, of course it's funny, you know, here's this guy in his like little white apron smoking a cigarette with a whiskey bottle in his back pocket. It was a family owned <laughs> diner that he started, you know, in the fifties, you know, and and every day was a special. You'd have tenderloin on one day, meatloaf on one day, fish on one day, you know. And you'd be damned if you called in there and wanted uh, five cheeseburgers on a day. Not that he didn't have cheeseburgers every day, but, you know, he always wanted, if you're calling in at lunch, you're getting the special. If somebody calls in on tenderloin day and wants five cheeseburgers, you know, he's slamming the phone down. Who the fuck calls in here for five cheeseburgers when we got tenderloin on a special day? This is a <laughs> bunch of goddamn bullshit, you know. And it was just that whole comical comical thing you know he had the little bar with the little stools and everybody and had all your regulars and you know your booths i mean yep. it was just but it was everybody knew each other you know it was just very almost like one big family you know i mean it kind of connected the whole town or, a community he, thing, he, he, right yeah and i'm sure you have that in a big city too i mean you know sure. you have the little little diners and stuff and then that was the other thing whenever if you've traveled I guess out west or wherever, you know, it was just a little diner out in the middle of nowhere. You know, you could get a stop and get something decent to eat, you know. So I hear you, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> the
0: the good old days. <laughs> I've I've been living off McDonald's for about yeah. thirty years, so everything you guys have said <laughs> is completely foreign to me. I've given up on fast
2: food. I don't I don't eat too much fast food anymore. It's not I just don't do it anymore.
1: <laughs> You're probably you're you're probably better off for it yeah i'd imagine um shifting gears just a little bit um and i think you may have briefly mentioned it earlier but um what can you tell us about the film adaptation of donny brook
2: uh well i didn't think it was ever going to happen honestly and actually i got to the point where i just kind of said, yeah what the fuck ever you know because i went through i mean i've I talked to so many people since the book it came out i'd met with so many different producers and film studios and uh it basically, yeah, about about this time last year, probably September last year, my agent got a hold of me, my filmmate, uh, Sherry Smiley, and she's like, uh Rumble Films, David Lancaster's inter- interested in buying an option on Donny Brook. I'm like, Yeah, sure, whatever. And uh, the next thing I know we're getting a contract. <laughs> I'm like, Okay, cool. And she's like, Well, they got eighteen months to do it. And I'm like, Okay, well I'll, I'll get paid this small amount of money for the option and it'll probably never fucking happen, you know. No big deal. Um, but there's more of the story because then I put two and two together once all this finally came together. And then, uh, uh, January this year, you know, they, they told me about, they would found a director and then, uh, found out about Tim Sutton. Look, you know, he and I got to talking a little bit later on, uh, earlier this year. And, uh, he had sent me links to some of the, the movies he'd made and i it was interesting to watch him grow as a filmmaker from the first, second, and third film that he'd done. I was like, this guy, I think this guy is probably a pretty good pick. You know, he's up and coming and uh, this would be his big break. And so he adapted the screenplay. Screenplay looked pretty good. It's not identical to the book. And I didn't expect that, you know, he's got to give his own version. And I like that, you know, he puts his own little touch to it, but the, the main characters, there: chainsaw Angus and Jarhead Earl. Um, and then uh, they, basically said, Hey, we're going to start shooting this thing in August. And then uh, he wanted to hook up before he started doing it. And then the shooting didn't happen in August. It got moved out because uh, a couple of the actors, they thought they had signed. They didn't, didn't work out. And then it got down to like two weeks before they're going to lose their backing. And uh, Tim was getting pretty worried, which I didn't realize, you know, what all went into this. Uh, Frank Grill, I believe was signed on from the beginning, which I was really excited about. And then they finally got Jamie Bell. And uh James Badgedale who plays Wayland I think they ended up signing them within like the last week before they were gonna lose everything if I understood correctly which it Hollywood's a weird place because you know every time they would name an actor it's kind of like you just don't realize so much talents out there and I'm like, okay yeah, I could totally see that. then you'd lose that person. I'm like, what well, fuck are you gonna replace him with now? I'm like wow, I could see that too. And then when it got <laughs> down to the last two people because actually the guy who was gonna play Wayland I Really, I'm not going to mention names. I really liked him a lot. And, uh, his schedule just, he's a comedian. and just wouldn't go. And, uh, I was like, fuck. And then I came back with James Tale. I'm like, I think I like him better. I mean, it's just, it, it fits with all the other characters as far as just that dynamic of them all working together. And, uh. I think Tim told me he was basically shitting bricks. Cause he's like, fuck, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. He's like fuck. And then when he met, missed the deadline of when it was supposed to happen. He had to go through the weekend. And finally he messaged me on a Sunday night. Cause he's supposed to heard something on Friday. <laughs> he's like, we got the green light buddy. And I'm like, cool. What the fuck does that mean? I guess that means they're doing the movie. Cool. And, uh, then they started, uh, sending me all the emails every day when they're shooting and where the set locations and stuff were, and everybody was really awesome. And, uh, Of course, it all happened right around the time that this new book was coming out. So that was really crazy because I couldn't actually go up the set to like the last week of shooting. And uh, the last week of shooting was also the week of my book release. So I went up one night to watch some filming, got to be in the film a little bit, and then had to come back the next morning, do a launch party, and then leave the next day after that. And I got to do like the last two days of shooting, which were like two 12-hour days. You know, I started like four in the evening, went to like four in the morning, which was... It was interesting, but the cool thing was I got to talk to David Lancaster, who's the producer that that bought everything. And I mean, I didn't realize the producer is pretty much more than the director, you know, because he's the guy floating the bill. And if he doesn't like what the director's doing, he goes out and lets him him know about it or what he can change or what he'd like to see. But he and I got to talk and we were eating on one of our breaks. And uh, this was about me asking because I had actually talked to my agent, you know, your agent always asks you who you who would like to send the book to, you know? And one of the people I'd mentioned was uh, Nicholas Reffin, And then uh, uh, the other person, you know, I kind of thought about is Jared or else is like, what do you think about Ryan Gosling? I said, yeah, Hey, I could see that. I said, you know, he's got the chops. He does some dark stuff. And then uh, I just figured that it never was going to work out with them. And then lo and behold, here we are a couple of years later and I'm talking to, the Lancaster, David Lancaster. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'd, when I read your book, really liked it. And he goes, I had talked to Nicholas Reffin and uh, Ryan Gosling. And I'm like, well, fuck, I guess my agent did listen to me because he had backed uh, the movie drive for, for them. So uh, I was like, cool. And he said, but you know, Reffin was wanting to do his own thing. Gosling was busy doing some other stuff. So it just wasn't going to work. So I said, I had to find a different director and all this. And I'm like, Hey, that's cool, dude. You know, I understand. I mean, <laughs> Hollywood's full of talent, you don't know, have to stop at one person. But it was, it was nice to know that whenever I've mentioned things to my agent, she's actually, she actually did listen to me because hell, I never know. <laughs> you know. She can, she can <laughs> send me an email or a phone call and say, yeah, I'm going to do it. Don't worry about it. Ah, you know, and you just never really know. But yeah, in her case, she's, she did a really good job. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to have two really good agents. So, and
0: be surrounded by some pretty good people and Lancaster was pretty know. awesome too. I don't know if listeners kind of caught this, and I know we talked about it a little bit off the air, but they filmed that um, not too far from where you live, right? Yeah, only, it was only two hours away, so yeah, yeah, yeah it was pretty nice. It's kind of cool that it has it lends a little bit of authenticity to the story, because the story also takes place in that general area, versus it filming in France for some kind of tax credit or Canada, where a lot of stuff's filmed, so I think it's really cool that, uh, oh, that yeah. they're able to do that a the, and and you know not just for the fact that it's cool when we film things here and and don't take it to another country but sure. it's filmed geographically um fairly accurately
2: yeah and they did a really good job on the set locations too i mean whenever you went to the locations it was like you know this is going to be curse watering hole i mean the the bar i went to um uh, actually smelled like piss in certain spots i was like holy fuck they just nailed this you know and uh, I mean, it was,
0: uh, <laughs> Oh, it was awesome.
2: It was, I mean, I was just, me and my wife were sitting at the bar and I'm like, man, you smell that. Cause they're going to put us as extras in the, this one bar scene. And she goes, I think it's the fake cigarettes are smoking. I said, no, I said, some motherfucker is pissed all over this bar. I said, you can just smell it. I said, it's old and fucking <laughs> sticky. I mean, it's there, it's in your nose. I can smell it, you know? And, uh, <laughs> i just did a real they did an awesome job and i even met the bar owner and name was carol she was a sweetheart you know she's like you're the guy who wrote the book i'm like yeah she's like this is my bar We you my book i'm like fuck yeah i'll sign your book cool i didn't she's tell like, her the, hey, the cool thing was the guy who plays uh poe man that was a horrible day for him because he was just getting smacked around a lot and he's a hell of an actor i mean just of an actor and uh he had already done a scene with Frank Grillo, and they have to kept doing these takes over and over and over and over again. He's they're trying to break this shot glass on his head, and the shot glass wouldn't break, so he's getting smacked in the face by uh, James or by a uh, Frank Grillo, and he has to fall down and get back up. You know, his face is getting all all red and can't get the glass to break. You know, Frank, every time he cut, he's like, "Hey, man, I'm sorry. You okay? You okay? Oh yeah, I'm fine." And uh, apparently, James, the guy was James, uh, I think his name, was James Hebert, really good actor. But uh, he'd just been having a long day, and him and the director kind of had some words. And, of course, then Tim and ended up uh, apologizing to him later on we are doing another scene. And uh, there was another part where he uh, he does some stuff where Waylon comes in looking for Angus, because Angus already coming looking for his sister. And he had me and my wife set the bar for this next scene, because they don't really shoot anything in random order. They're just going to put it in order later on. So that's pretty much shoot all these different scenes where these guys are going to be at this particular time. And Angus is going to come in and basically blow the bartender away. And he had to keep messing with this whiskey bottle. Let's take whiskey bottle down, sit on the thing, sets two shot glasses down and says whatever. And he's got this really crazy little sinister laugh, like the Joker. Cause he knows he's getting ready to fucking die. And, uh, Frank has to come in. He looks at me and then he looks at Poe. And then he's getting ready to kill him. Oh, uh, for whatever reason, Tim ends up turning to me, you know, he says, cut. And he's like, Hey, Frank, Bill, yes. Call me Frank, Bill and call Frank Grillo, Frank Grillo. So they don't get the two Franks mixed up. I can't just say Frank and Frank. So when he says, Frank, Bill, can you turn to me so I can see you a little better in the camera? The bartender is playing Poe. James is like, turns around and looks at me because he's are going to put his whiskey bottle back on the other side. He says, you're Frank, Bill. I said, yeah, you wrote the fucking book. I said, yeah, I wrote the fucking book. I wrote Donny Brook. He's like, holy fucking shit. You've been sitting here the whole goddamn time. I said, "Yeah, I've been sitting here the whole goddamn time." He says, "Nobody fucking told me you were here." He said, "Son of a bitch, you just been sitting here the whole time." I said, "Yeah," and he's like, "God damn, let me shake." You. you know, he shook my hand and he's like, Will you sign my fucking book." I said, "Yeah, dude, I'll sign your fucking book." You know, and then he's putting the whiskey bottle back and he's like, "Holy fuck!" And he's trying to get back into character. He's like, "Fuck, you've been sitting here the whole." And he's like whispering to himself, "You've been sitting here the whole fucking time. I can't fucking believe this." And uh, then I up finished up the scene, and everything, and I got to take pictures with him afterwards. Shook his hand, and talked for a while, and then. We were actually staying at the same hotel, but we didn't get to hook back up. And uh ended up getting with him later on. got his number, and we texted and stuff. And I was getting him a copy of the next book and stuff. He's, uh, he's a really interesting guy. Really, really good actor, too. So it was, uh, it was interesting. Everybody, I mean, everybody on set was cool. Frank Grillo was cool. Jamie Bell didn't like to really be bothered. He's a really big character actor. I talked to him a few times. Uh, and uh, I think he really nailed it as Jarhead Earl. I mean, he's really... I don't even know how to, how to put it into words. I mean, he just, uh, you don't even have to listen to him talk. It's just the facial expressions and the actions to, to watch him actually act, you know? Cause one of the things my wife and I got to do was we'd sit behind the scenes and watch everything on monitors and you put these earphones on. They kept asking if I wanted to headphones to, to listen. I'm like, no, I'd rather watch and be pulled in. You know, if they're not pulling me in by their actions, I don't really need to hear their words, you know? And uh, some of the ending stuff that Jamie Jamie Bell does is just it's just polarizing, and just uh, just watching him do it just pretty pretty awesome. So yeah, I was pretty happy with what I seen. So well,
1: that sounds it like, pretty amazing. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome experience. Um, you you always think about like is uh like you said earlier, like the act the the writer has to understand that whoever is adapting it is going to have their own kind of take on the story and everything. So, oh yeah, so yeah, like, definitely. It's great that you went in kind of with that. Like knowledge, or like that expectation, and sure, didn't like kind of turn into some weird like diva author, and had a good time with it. That's oh awesome. yeah, yeah. Um,
2: the only the only thing you know is watching some of the end fight scenes. There was a couple of things that, you know, I just kept my mouth shut and I'm like, if somebody asked me, I'm going to tell them, <laughs> you know, but nobody asked me and I didn't say anything. You know, it wasn't my place to say anything because I mean, the, 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 uh, the crew they picked to do all the fighting and stuff did a really good job. There was just some things that I think that didn't need to be there, and, yeah. but it was yeah. there. So man, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. I still <laughs> yeah. think, you know. They get a ninety nine percent out of a hundred from me, you know. Uh, Tim, the director, and uh, David, the producer, did great. All the actors did great. The fighter, everybody did a good job. So,
1: so you know. is it? It's done with production, right? So, like, it's all filmed and everything.
2: Everything's filmed, and they started editing this month. So, were, I think, if I understood correctly, they're trying to get a director's cut by the end of December. And then what will happen is the producer, you know, I'm sure the Purdue, I'm sure David Lancaster's there for most of that, but he basically comes in to watch the director's cut and decides on what, what goes and what could have been added or whatever, you know, because he kind of gets final approval on everything. So, mm-hmm. uh, and they're wanting to do some, some of the film festivals next year too.
1: So, so they're thinking That's, they're going to have something that they're going to be able to show sometime next year.
2: Um, yeah, because they'll do the, what is it? Is it the con that's in France? And then there's the yeah. Italian film festival and they don't know if they'll be done in time for Sundance. I don't, you know, I don't get all that, but, uh, but one person said no, one person said yes. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. But Yeah. They, they should, they should have something out. I'm, I'm guessing like late fall. I mean, after they get through doing all the different things you have to do, I would think. Yeah. So.
1: Like, yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So we don't have to wait like three years. <laughs> No, appreciate you shouldn't unless <laughs> unless something bad happens. <laughs> that's good to hear. That's good. That's good news. Well, we'll and, keep we'll keep our listeners posted about when when that when that gets closer to coming out for sure.
2: Oh yeah, cool. I appreciate it. Yeah, too. And you know, with Frank Grillo, is like the big big thing right now as far as action actors. And I think Jamie Bell's had some really big things going on with his career as far as uh, some of the movies he's done recently, getting well reviewed. And that's 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 always a positive.
0: So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, um, I, I, have, I have a question, an immediate follow-up. So, how many miles is fifty k? And what has to chase you for you to run that far? <laughs> thirty-one <laughs> miles. It's actually thirty-one. It's a very miles. Very foreign concept. Uh, to myself, of why somebody would do this? Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, you know, the next thing would be a fifty mile or so. <laughs> That's just. Yeah. And and there was a there was quite a few people out there doing fifty miles that day too. So yeah, it's
1: so it's, so you. It was like um, in the last couple of weeks, you ran a 50K.
2: Yeah, it was last
0: Saturday, actually. Wow.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I have I have some logistical questions. How long does
0: that take? How many hours were you out on the road? Uh, my goal was
2: to do it with like six hours and 15 minutes or six hours and 20 minutes. I ended it in like six hours and 58 minutes. I was 22nd out of 98 people, uh, and I was seventh in my age group. Um, out of those 98 people that ran to 50 K 20 of them quit after 11 miles. Uh, and I forget how many people ran to 50 miler, but there was only eight that finished.
0: So, so wow. How many, and I don't even know how to to frame this. Like, like you just pretty much run nonstop. I mean, you stop like use the washroom. I mean, I've seen things like this where people like slow down to like a, a light jog and drink some water and like throw a water bottle on the side of the road and keep moving. <laughs> I mean, going pretty
2: much well it's it's basically it's it's a it's a trail run. It's what they call an ultra. It's the first mile it's the it's the beginning mileage for an ultra marathon. And basically for a, a thirty mile, thirty one mile, you could you could rely on aid stations. I don't I've never relied on anybody. I carry what they call a a a hydration pack and it carries one point five liters of water and I could put whatever else I want in the little pouches on the side, which they call your nutrition, and I carry all my nutrition with me. Uh, the only thing I did was at mile 20 cause it's a 10 mile loop and where you start at, there's like a little, uh, 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 I don't know what you would call it. like a camping area. And, uh, I went in, uh, it's like a building or whatever, but I went in and, uh, filled my, uh, hydration pack up with water and, uh, mixed up some of my other stuff. I used something called tailwind, which gives you plenty of, uh, good carbohydrates from sucrose. And uh, it also has all your sodium, magnesium, and all that good stuff. Only problem was I should have been taking double of what I was taking because by mile 21 I was so fucking cramped up, I and mean, my legs were on fire. I could hardly walk, and I just pushed on through the last 10 miles. I did all you walked and jog. A lot of a lot of the hills in an ultra marathon, unless you're just like a uh, a world class ultra runner, you're gonna walk the hills and run when you can run. Run the flat parts and the lower hills, which. Really, I ran the first eleven miles too fast. I was, you know, getting like, uh, I think me and my buddy were doing like nine and a half, ten minute miles, and that was way too fast going out. We should have been sticking around ten and a half minute miles to have to have done a little bit better. But we still finished pretty good. That's, so. that's incredible. Longer, I don't even right?
0: like. I don't even know what to say. That's
2: amazing that, that, that you can do
0: that. So, yeah, it's a lot of I like fun. I mean, you're
2: sat in the see. woods all day. It's oh yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. I'm still healing up too. So,
1: <laughs> so do you ever do, and I, I know this is probably like an entirely different category, but like the Spartan or like the Tough Mudder stuff or any of that? Uh,
2: I've done two of the, uh, we've got those, we've had two of them uh, up around, uh, I think it's up uh, Mount Vernon. There's there's two of them. It's a, uh, gosh, what are those things? Obstacle course racing. Yeah. I've done two of those. And they were only four miles. And the, the only thing I don't like about those is you're waiting in line to do an obstacle course. And sometimes you're like wondering, I don't know, you're standing in line. And it's like you're seeing somebody have a hard time do something that looks so fucking simple. And it's kind of like, God damn it, <laughs> would you fucking just do it? You know, I, I just like to keep moving. I, I just, I don't care for them. I really don't. Because a lot of this stuff is really simple. And the things that are hard, you know, it's, you know, it's, I don't know. I just didn't, I wouldn't I would break it. Now, if I'd done a Spartan race, it'd probably be a little bit different, maybe. You I'd know? like
0: to draw Rob's attention uh, to the fact, Rob, he said it's only four miles. Only four
1: miles. Yeah. That's what he said. That's yeah. What you want to make sure you caught that only four miles. <laughs> yeah. But what you said about watching someone do something simple and having a hard time of it, I was like, that's my entire work life. So.
2: Oh, <laughs> I get aggravated too quick. I'm just, you know, when I want to do something, <laughs> I want to do it. I just want to stir and wait, you know, it's like, come on
1: that's cool that's oh. cool um well congratulations on um being actually fit and in shape unlike and oh I. thank you and um it's cool <laughs> like are you one of those because i like, from what i understand like a lot of people who get into running like it almost becomes like addictive like um
2: oh yeah it's like a heroin yeah it's yeah. like a heroin addiction Oh, you're wanting to run all the time i You know, they say after you've done a marathon or an ultra, like however many miles it is, that's how many days you're supposed to wait before you try to run again. I I try to get out and do a a run today, and I should have only ran like two or three miles. I ran like 5.2, and my left knee and left ankle started getting really sore, so I was like, fuck, I shouldn't have ran today, I guess. so. No.
1: Uh, So So, I'll probably take another week off. You just gave me an idea, though. If it's like heroin, if we make running illegal— we could have like a running epidemic and then everybody gets in shape because they're not supposed to run, but like
2: <laughs> probably wouldn't
1: happen. no, but yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah a lot of, I mean, most people I know who run, it's just, it's a, it's an addiction, yeah. but I mean, I, I power lift on the side too. So I always have something to fall back. Of on. course you power lift.
1: That's awesome. I, I power, I like, I sometimes walk faster than normal, like to get to my car. Yeah, If it's cold or rainy, <laughs> like a speed walk. you might even get yeah, when it's cold. out of it. now if i
2: if i go walking or hiking i use a 25 pound vest so gotta keep the keep the (laughs) endurance
1: level up that's awesome um so before we wrap up we want to talk a little bit about what's on the horizon i know that um you got something called back to the dirt coming up in the future. But like in general, what, what are we going to see next from you?
2: Basically back to the dirt's based on jarhead Earl's father. And it takes place back around the eighties. And it's uh, about a Vietnam vet. He's an ex Marine. And, uh, it's just, it's a man who's fighting age. Uh, he's, uh, he does steroids. He lifts weights and he gets mixed up with a younger woman. Who's a, a stripper and a whole bunch of shit. Just, hits the fan and a lot of it, he doesn't realize what's going on until the very end. It's uh, kind of a psychological type thing, but uh, it does a a lot of flashbacks to the Vietnam war. Um, I interviewed my dad for a lot of the things talking about boot camp and some of the things he went through. And probably when we start doing edits on that, I'll probably have to go back and talk to him a little bit more about some of the different battles and stuff he was involved in. So yeah, it's a lot of uh, a lot of realism to it. Uh, It's got more of a, it's very, very gritty. There's a lot of, uh, drinking and smoking and, uh, uh, ass beating. So, uh, and you get to see, uh, a much younger, uh, uh, Jesus, what the heck? The guy's name from, uh, the Savage. Cause he was so much older than the Savage. Uh, the, uh, kind of like the white supremacist leader, gun dealer, uh, John um, some, some Blank, my mind right now, uh, Arian, uh, <laughs> Uh, I think that's they called him the Aryan. I believe in the book. That's horrible. I can't remember that. <laughs> uh, so many characters to keep up with. That's the that's always my my downfall. But uh, it deals with him too. He's also in it at a much younger age, much much younger. Alcorn. I was going Alcorn. to my notes and yeah,
1: yep. yes, yeah, no the worries.
2: Aryan Alcorn. Yeah, it deals with him at a much younger age when he's dealing guns, and uh, he's kind of buddies with Jarhead Earl's father, and. uh yeah, it's, it's a pretty wild book.
1: So is that – Very wild. That'll be what we see next or is there going to be anything in between now and then?
2: Uh, as far as I know, that's what you'll see next. I mean my publisher has a novella for me and they also have another book that I'm working on uh, about the disgruntled Americans that I've delved back into. Um, I don't think they've read either one of those yet. So, But the uh, novella – you know, my agent and I've talked to sometimes you like to have like a something small in between everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, that could always be a possibility. So yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well awesome. I definitely looking but forward that's to all of Kind of what's what's down the pipe for the next couple of years. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to appreciate all of it. That. Your
0: stuff is always a blast to read. Hey, thanks for fighting um technological challenges and time zone issues and everything else oh, to come man. on and join us. It's been it's been a blast. Oh no, man. Let's it's, not let's not make it like four years this time. I appreciate it.
2: I'll do my best. Well, you know, the thing was, is I had a comic book that I was supposed to write and it fell through. So it pushed this book out way, way the hell out. So, uh, that all kind of fell apart and much. My editors, you know, I got really cool editors at my publisher, you know, and they're kind of like, yeah, Hey, we can push out for you to write this comic book. And then it took like a year to work out this comic book contract. And when they got it worked out, my agent got it worked out with them because they were so fucking slow to get back with her on everything. Then I get, an email from the editors going, Hey Frank, we've, you know, it's been a year and we're going to switch gears. we got different goals now. So let's get on the phone and chat about something. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm not emailing you back. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's insane. I mean, like, when I did, wrote the, when I did the crow, it took a week to negotiate the contract. So <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I probably won't write any more comic books. So it's just, it wasn't worth the headache. So
1: yeah, it's too bad. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, Frank. It's always awesome. And um, I agree with Livius. We have to make this more of a, a regular thing. So like, you know, hey, maybe we have you on to help us review something else. I don't know. But anyway, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Sure. Anytime. Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. Another awesome interview with, uh, with Frank Bill. Yeah. You know, and, and we're guilty of this, too, I think, Rob, that we don't think to just like reach out to somebody if they don't have something current out. And I think we need to A. We need to do it a little more um, just because we should
1: B, interviews are a lot less work for us. <laughs> yeah, it sucks to to have those gaps in like communication just because we haven't uh, gotten some new work, but it is, it, you know, it's for the best intentions. We want to promote someone's work when it's fresh and, you know, ready to go. Promotable. Um, yeah, promotable. So but yeah, it does create those things where it's like, oh, we talked to you two and a half years ago. So um, yeah, let's change that. Like, I like the fact that with um, we had uh, those episodes where Craig Clevenger came on as a guest reviewer. That was great, because we got Absolutely. to talk to Craig, we got to like, you know, hang out with him and, mm-hmm. and stuff. So maybe we should try doing more of that. I will tell you, if uh, if you want to guest review something with us, I mean, the worst thing we're
0: going to, well, I was going to say the worst thing we'll do is say no. The worst thing we'll do is ignore your email, so <laughs> but being honest, that's probably the worst thing we'll do, so at any rate. Yeah, that's true. Um, but don't plan on coming on next week, because next week we already have guest hosts. Uh, Jesse Lawrence and Misty Bennett will be joining us for the christmas special i don't know i don't know what we're gonna wind up calling it we'll look at whatever it was called last year and just use that i guess but uh we're gonna be reviewing all right so i guess we didn't we haven't done this in the past um watch a nightmare before christmas um by this time roughly this time next week because we're gonna be talking about it um like we did on our last um holiday episode we did uh rudolph the red-nosed reindeer
1: and that other movie that was movie. a lot of fun what was that other movie called? that shit movie we watched grampus yes grampus yeah
0: so uh, nightmare yeah, before a Christmas. Of fun. Uh, we're going to be on YouTube. Uh, we're going to do the uh, the video thing mostly because we want to. This year, we're going to be able to see the gifts that uh, that everybody got. in previous years, when we did this, you know, all you heard was a bunch of uh, you know paper ruffling and and stuff and, and descriptions of gifts. This time, we're going to do it on YouTube. So you'll hear it here, but if you hear it here, you won't be seeing um, what's happening. So definitely want to head over to YouTube.com uh search for book podcast we should be the only thing that comes up
1: that's right so come back and join us next week for that um in the new year we'll have we're going to get back to books pretty quickly though um i think after the christmas thing do we have we're going to do a book right we
0: are absolutely going to do a book after our year in review so yeah the first episode in january should be a book review and then sometime in january we're going to have we're going to have seth harwood on uh, a, a, a night with Seth Harwood is what we're going to call that one. Cause we really just kind of want to <laughs> shoot the ship. So it's not necessarily an interview. It's not going to be a review. I don't think of anything. Maybe uh, he had pitched a few uh, great short stories. Maybe we'll just as a talking point, maybe cover one of those, but uh, that'll be coming up in January. Then who knows what the new year will hold for booked.
1: All right. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. Join us next week. Until then I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Nedden. Keep reading.